Welcome to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. I'm Mary Harvey from the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Thanks for joining us for the Sport and Rights podcast. One year out from the Japan Olympic Games, I recently sat down with Minky Warden, Director of Global Initiatives at Human Rights Watch, to discuss a new report they just released focused on Japan and the practice of taibatsu, or corporal punishment. This report was recently the subject of a discussion between IOC President Thomas Bach and Japanese Olympic Committee President Yasuhiro Yamashita to discuss what changes will be made to eradicate abuse within Japanese sport. Our conversation with Minky also explored a number of other human rights issues involving the world of sport and the approach Human Rights Watch takes to influencing the actors involved. I began by asking Minky to tell us about the new report and its disturbing findings of the extent of abuse of young athletes in Japan. I think it's very significant. We're, we're launching this podcast at the moment when uh, the world was supposed to be tuning into the Olympics. It's, the, it's historic because it's the first time the Olympics have ever been postponed. Uh, the Tokyo Olympics were supposed to launch last week. And uh, Human Rights Watch produced this report. The title is, I was hit so many times I can't count. And I think that's significant. The title was actually taken from a testimony, an athlete, a young athlete we interviewed who described his experience in high school baseball. Um, and I think in this case, you could say that the title says it all. I, there, um, our finding is that in Japan, um, uh, many athletes are unable to reap the benefits of sport because they are suffering from physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and harassment in sport training. And a little bit about the methodology of this report. Human Rights Watch uh, conducted in-person, you know, face-to-face interviews with a number of athletes, including Olympians and Paralympians. Um, we also conducted a truly nationwide survey in Japan uh, with uh, 757 respondents from 45 of Japan's 47 prefectures, those are like provinces, and we also covered 50 sports. So this would uh, include both winter and summer Olympic sports, for example, and then other sports like sumo uh, that are not covered by, that are not uh, part of the Olympics. And our significant findings uh, were this. Uh, in Japan in 2013, when Japan was bidding to host the Tokyo Olympics, there were a series of, of videos and news stories that surfaced showing um, that there was something called taibatsu, which is another where it's a Japanese word for corporal punishment and sport training. Um, one video surfaced of a high school volleyball coach repeatedly um, slapping a kid in the face uh, as part of sport training. And this was very embarrassing. The Japan Olympic Committee and a number of other sports agencies got together and said, we're gonna have zero tolerance for this abuse in sport. And they put in place a bunch of reforms. So what Human Rights Watch's report looked at was, are those reforms working? Do they meet international standards? 
And our findings were that the 2013 reforms fall far short of international standards for athlete protection and also Olympic standards, which is quite ironic since Japan is the the next Olympic host. And even those very low standards had not been implemented. Um, We also found that there is no comprehensive tracking of child abuse in Japan. So you could put it another way, the Japanese government isn't even bothering to count the number of abuse complaints or cases. And we also found that um, there's a lack of victim support infrastructure um, and a culture of impunity for abusive coaches. So in summary, um, uh, that if you were a child athlete or a teen athlete who was being abused by a coach in your sport in Japan, you would struggle to report the abuse to sports federations or the government and get assistance. And we also found out that if if you did, it would probably end your career in sport. So it's really, there. there's no um, accountability in the system. There's nothing to stop coaches who are abusing uh, kids in sport training. And, uh, and even if there is an athlete who's brave enough to step por- forward to report abuse, um, uh, that athlete would have a, a, a terrible and terrifying experience and probably not receive any sort of remedy um, and also lose, lose his or her career in sport. So it's a pretty, a pretty, grim, um, uh, a pretty grim set of findings. So can you tell me, grim indeed, um, tell me about how you, so you, you've mentioned that there's not, there's, there's, difficulty with reporting for a variety of reasons, right? Um, reporting mechanisms um, may or may not be fit for purpose. Athletes aren't coming forward. How did you get this information? So tell me about how you went about doing the work that you did. Oh, thank you. It, you know, the way Human Rights Watch does research, um, we actually started, and I, and I might speak personally here for a minute, we, we started by Um, amassing a a trove of news stories that featured abuse. And these were Japanese language news stories. So we came across hundreds of stories of uh, coaches who were punching, slapping, kicking, or beating the athletes with objects. This Um, is after 2013? This is after 2013. So there okay, are so after the reform supposedly went into effect. After the reform supposedly went into effect, we, we came across all of these stories of athletes who were forced to train when they were injured or punished with excessive training, um, uh, beatings. There are videos all over the internet that show, um, for example, there's a baseball coach who um, uh, on a video taken by a parent or someone in the stands punches and kicks uh, the the baseball team, the uh, practically the entire team, and you can watch these kids staggering back with the force of of the kicks from the coach. So clearly there was still a problem because these videos were surfacing. But on a personal note, um, I have a 17 year old. I have three three kids, and one is a 17 year old son. Um, there were several suicides of 17 year olds. Um, that surfaced. And um, there was one in July of 2018 that struck me especially. And uh, the, um, he left a note saying it was the volleyball. I couldn't take it anymore. And his coach, uh, we've, we found out through, our, through an interview with the parents, 
um, the coach was actually respond uh, the subject of complaints from other students who said that they had permanent PTSD from this high school training. And uh, so it seemed like something that we should investigate further. So Human Rights Watch um, sent a research team, I was part of the team, uh, to Japan in February of this year. And we did, we partnered with World Players. Um, uh, the World Players Association is the, the global trade union for all professional athletes. So they helped to get us into the baseball camps and to talk to professional athletes. We also were able to um, uh, rely on our Human Rights Watch Japan office. We've had an established office there for more than a decade. Um, and so we were able to partner with groups like Save the Children, another group called Athletes Save Japan. And I think um, we were able to do this research because we worked with a very courageous group of young athletes um, a number of them experienced Taibatsu. They experienced um, uh, beating and abuse in training, uh, in sport training, and they're determined to stop it. I wanted to add also one other reason we were keen to do this research is um, I had seen a news story that there were um, a that there were more than a hundred deaths in judo training uh, between '83 and uh, the current day. Uh, between 1983 and now. And I thought, what on earth is happening in this training that children are dying? Um, these are children. These aren't deaths of adults. These are, I mean, these deaths are, in general, awful, but children? Yeah. yeah, these are deaths of children. And we were able to work with a, a group of parents whose children died in judo training or were permanently disabled. And it just, it, it, you know, I had all of the benefits of sport growing up. I played dozens of sports. I got a lot out of it. I learned a lot about teamwork, as, as I know you did, Mary, um, in your, your career. But I think um, it struck me that for many kids, sport is the sport, the sport that gave me so much takes away a lot from these kids. And um, I interviewed the mother of one of these um, kids who, this isn't sort of the kids are sparring together and a terrible accident happens. This is um, the child skips a practice or shows up late and the coach puts him in a chokehold and he loses oxygen to the brain and dies, right? So this is, the, this is not accidental. This is a choice by the coach to punish the children in a way that violates international human rights standards, child rights, and of course the Olympic Charter. So um, that was that was why we felt it was so urgent to do something. I want to also say that we that that we deliberately chose Japan because it is the host of the next Olympics, and this is a global problem. So if we have any chance to solve this global problem, we're gonna to have to have an evidence base. So that means we need to know what is happening, why is it happening, and how is it happening in order to, to change that um, so that the next generation doesn't have to suffer these terrible abuses. Yeah, you mentioned global. I mean, we've just recently heard about the death of the triathlete in South Korea. Um, she committed suicide um, and left behind evidence of what had happened to her. Um, and this is after she had reported it numerous times. Um, she, how many times did she report the abuse, Minky, to different, so, to different actors? I mean, 
So, so Choi Suk Hyun, and I think it's important we we know her name because she made an enormous sacrifice. Um, you know, she she was she joined the national team as a triathlete when she was 15 years old. I you know I sort of um, imagine that she she gave up the life that a lot of Korean um, teenagers enjoy of um, boy bands and. Uh, um, you know, um, enjoying herself with her friends to to have a life of extreme sacrifice because the, her sport, um, the Olympic triathlon, requires endurance, right? Um, but the things that she had to endure as an athlete go far beyond harsh training methods. I mean, she certainly experienced that. But she wrote in her diary of, um, there was one, uh, she wrote, uh, um, it was raining outside and I was beaten so badly today. Uh, and she filed complaints to answer your question with the Korean National Olympic Committee, with the local authorities, with her federation. She did everything right. You know, uh, athletes are very good at playing by the rules. She understood what the rules are. She, she probably understood that there was a risk of reporting her coach um, into the authorities um, uh, um, who had hired the coach, right? She did everything right, and uh, the Korean National Olympic Committee actually sent someone to interview her in April, and she committed suicide June 26. And I, I think, you know, those those days and weeks and months between when she reported the abuse to very high authorities. She, she must have concluded at the end of June that nothing was going to happen. But I think it's such, a, it's such an indictment of the sports system in South Korea and beyond that, um, that no one helped her when she did everything right. And I think it, go, it shows how dysfunctional the systems that we have in place are. Um, they're called child safeguarding systems. But just to take the story back to Japan, what we found in Japan, I think, is fairly typical, and that is that the the systems that they have in place, and we enter, I sat across the table from government officials in Tokyo, and I asked them to show me what their, their rules were, what their systems were, and it looks good on paper, but then you realize these are only guidelines, and it's a choice for every federation whether or not to set up a hotline. It's a choice for the federations whether or not they have a staff person who's designated to take abuse complaints. And in most cases, they don't have a person. So if it's not someone's job, then it's nobody's priority. And when you're the athlete who's suffering, um, then you feel like you have nowhere to turn and it looks like you have nowhere to turn. And you tested some of these hotlines, did you not? I mean, you went in and you were informed of some and you said okay well let's test them out and what tell me about what you found yeah the the report contains deep uh, a sort of a very detailed graph of of what of our tests um and what's uh we actually put uh, japanese law students on it um because they're closer in age to the teenage athletes who might need to use them and we wanted to find out sort of what is the experience um, so in, in many cases, we couldn't find any hotlines, right? It didn't, it didn't exist or was so difficult to find that we, that we couldn't locate it. And if a Japanese law student couldn't find it, then probably um, a, a, a Japanese athlete couldn't find it. Um, we found hotlines that were only by fax, and we don't know any Japanese teenagers who use fax. 
Um, some What's were, the facts? <laughs> some Sorry. were some sometimes the phone that your your abuse complaint went straight to the desk of the president. That's a problem because maybe the president is the best friend of the coach who's abusing you, or the president is himself abusing you. Um, and by the way, all the presidents of federations are men. Um, and you know, of course, Mary, that Human Rights Watch has also done work on uh, sports um, federation presidents, on soccer federation presidents, who um, both in Haiti and in Afghanistan um, over the last 18 months have been credibly accused of raping members of the women's national football teams. So again, the president, uh, hotline going to the president is, is not something that's going to feel like a secure environment where you can explain terrible abuse that's happened to you. We also found um, sometimes the, the phone lines were only available between 2 and 5 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, so when you have a crisis or when you've been abused or, or um, beaten up or hit in the face, um, you want to report it right away, but maybe the hotline's only open on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 2 and 5 p.m. So there are a lot of what I would call hurdles to reporting. Um, and I, I wanted to say, you know, the, the, there's an entire section on, in our report on this, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But we concluded, and the, and the sort of the headline of this section is that these, what reporting systems there are, are largely inaccessible to young athletes. And there's a, a sentence, of course, we went back and forth with the Japan sports agencies um, to, find, to, to ask them, because we wanted to be sure we weren't missing anything. And the Japan sport agency responded that they don't have, they're in charge of all sport for clubs and education as well. Uh, they responded that they don't have any reporting mechanisms. So I think it uh, part of the problem is that the sports system is not asking the question, do we have abusive coaches? They're not asking the question, do we have a problem? And uh, as you know, in the business and human rights field, which is where all of these sports federations and all of these governing bodies like FIFA or the International Olympic Committee fall, um, uh, companies understand now, multi major multinational companies understand that if you have a problem like child labor in your supply chain, you want to know about it. You don't want to bury it. So the same thing goes for sports. If you have a coach who is sexually assaulting or um, uh, physically um, beating players in the face, as we found both, we found both of those things in Japan, you need to know about it. You need to take action. And I think we learned a lot over the last um, uh, four years since um, the reports of Larry Nasser, the so-called Olympic doctor in the United States. We, you know, first three gymnasts came forward. Um, and in the past, there had been com police complaints about him. And the, and the athletes were never believed or listened to. And as a consequence, um, more than 500 uh, young women were uh, sexually abused over a period of several decades. And I think if you have a problem like that in your sports system, you need to know about it and you need to take action. Because if you don't, more children will be abused. Well, and this gets into the issue of accountability and responsibility. You mentioned business and human rights. And the UN guiding principles talk about, you know, businesses have a responsibility. 
um, the responsibility to uh, respect human rights. And when they, one, they have to look for human rights abuses in their supply chain and other, other aspects of their work. And then when they find it, they do something about it and then also offer remedy to those who've been affected. Why is sport different? I mean, you can argue it's billions and billions of dollars, euros, yen, whatever you want to call it, is spent on sport. But I don't want to get too far off the topic. I'm going to come back to Japan in a minute. But why is business adhering to this? And why is sport, which you can argue is a business, not, not there? This well, is clearly a human rights issue in terms of their operations, one would think. Yeah. Um, so the the good news in terms of fixing this problem, and when we've established it's a global problem, um, is that these sports federations and these governing bodies are enterprises, and enterprises are clearly covered by the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So whether they accept it or not, they're covered, and they have a responsibility under the UN guiding principles. Um, so. I think um, you know we're very much focused on what can be done. Um, I think why why uh, why these sports bodies aren't um, taking action now is I think they've gotten away with it for a long time, right? It, it, but we've reached what I would call really a, a crisis or a pivotal moment where and I and I think it it does have to do with the with the athletes who step forward to um, call out and um, bring to justice uh, Larry Nasser, the Olympic doctor. There have been abuse, uh, horrific abuse revelations in the last um, few years in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Colombia. British gymnastics just, you know, they were talking about their, their gymnasts. Well, the Brit- um, uh, there's a wonderful documentary uh, that I commend to everyone who's listening to this podcast called Athlete A. It's available on Netflix. And it actually looks at the high cost to gymnasts for, of stepping forward. Um, and I think it should be, a, a, it, it actually should be viewed by every athlete because they should know what to look for um, in terms of abusive coaching. Uh, but it also is, it has led, I think, to a number of athletes uh, from Singapore. Jessica Yu has stepped forward. She's a a skater who was trained in China to speak about uh, a physical abuse she experienced and harassment and verbal abuse. Uh, the gymnasts in the UK, one of them said that when she was a 10-year-old, she was put into a cabinet as punishment for, for you know, uh, a training mistake. So these types of abuses take um, uh, enormous courage to step forward. If you are still an, an Olympic athlete, one of the things that Athlete A um, indicated, the documentary indicated, is that the gymnasts who came forward in the Larry Nasser case may have um, been passed over for the Olympic team. Um, that's a terrible indictment of a system that actually punishes those who come forward with important information about abusive coaches or officials. So, um, but just to go, to return to Japan, I think um, our main message for this report is that um, the Olympics have been postponed. That's devastating for athletes worldwide who've been training their entire careers. But it might actually be um, enough time to pass reforms in Japan before the opening ceremony next July 23 to explicitly ban 
any form of abuse as a coaching technique. That, that ban doesn't exist in Japan. Um, we've also recommended that Japan establish a, that the country establish a Japan Center for Safe Sport, which would be an independent body to address child abuse in sport. And I think now that we've established that this is a, a very serious problem, we want to make, we want to be clear and concrete about what steps can be taken. And these steps that can be taken in Japan can be taken in any country around the world. Um, and one, one final thing that we learned is the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, after the Larry Nassar catastrophe, actually at the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires passed a series of safeguarding measures. They put um, athlete safeguarding into the Olympic Charter itself. So this is not something that is a games time only thing. You don't only protect uh, athletes when the Olympics are happening. It has to happen at all times. Athletes have to be safe at all times. Um, and we learned that, that these safeguarding uh, uh, principles and this toolkit was, is not translated into Japanese, right? There are some very basic steps that could be taken right now to, to protect children. This is not something that anyone has to wait for. Well, and just before we leave Japan, I mean, one of the things that, that I've certainly learned in the work with the center is, you know, while, while prevention and mitigation is, is where you start, you have to offer remedy, and you don't have an opportunity when it comes to this kind of abuse without reporting. And so getting, especially children, to report is enormously difficult. Um, so the, 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 the grievance mechanism or the way they report has to be really child-friendly or at least athlete-friendly. And some of the things that you've mentioned uh, clearly indicate that there's an opportunity to make those um, grievance mechanisms or ways to complain a lot more friendly um, and anonymous, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and this does not carry um, a major financial obligation, right? I mean, all, the truth is all you have to do is make it someone's job. It has to be someone's job to take abuse complaints. And that's, that's the most fundamental thing. Well, it's um, someone's job, but it's also accountability, right? So there's still, even if it's someone's job, how do you whack away at impunity? Yeah. I, you know, I think you also, you have to look at this from the perspective of, of child athletes or teenage athletes and think, and, and, um, and actually work with them. I mean, I, the greatest experience that, that I had in doing this research was sitting down across a, a coffee, you know, across a, a table and having a cup of tea and hearing from these athletes in their own voices what happened to them, but also what they'd like to see. I, I never left an interview without asking the athletes what they would like to see for the future. And that's where you get the, the hope. Um, at, I'll tell you one story. There's a, um, a, a volleyball player, a top volleyball player, um, Naomi Masuko, who was, um, uh, she said that when she was training and she was a national team player, uh, legend in the sport of volleyball. But she said when she was training, she wasn't focused on her performance every day. She was focused on how, how not to be beaten up by her coach. And, but she also later talked about, talked to her coach about this experience. And the coach said that it was much worse when he was training himself. So she came to understand that this is a continuum, that the coaches were beating the, the athletes because they had that experience themselves. And I think this may be true far beyond Japan. 
Um, and so what she, you know, she didn't just give up. She actually started a tournament in Japan in 2015 where um, a volleyball tournament where coaches aren't allowed to yell at, scream at, verbally or physically uh, harass the young players. And she, you know, with this, she was able to recapture her own love of the sport and able to create a safe space for other athletes. So in doing this report, we didn't just hear about um, uh, uh, suffering of athletes. We heard about resilience and we heard about how these athletes have turned their own experience of uh, a beating or abuse around and are working to make change. So we have to do everything we can to support them. They can't be alone and they need systemic reforms. Yeah, and these athletes are one day very likely going to be parents, and they're going to have children who may want to participate in sport. And I, I bet you they're going to have a very firm opinion about what their kids uh, should and shouldn't be exposed to uh, when it comes to, um, you know, motivating children to, um, to train. Um, and it's actually a fascinating question that at the center we're going to explore more, which is, you know, it's a little bit like what happened um, in other areas of sexual abuse. You know, there's a line. And at what point are you crossing it? Right? At what point, in, in this case with physical abuse, at what point are you training, is an athlete being trained and perhaps, um, you know, being trained past what they thought they were capable of? And if you sit down with a bunch of athletes, every one of them has a story about that. And at what point does that cross over into abuse? Is that just endangering their safety? Well, uh, um, uh- a lot yeah. of the, I will, I, I will say that a lot of the athletes, and we also interviewed many coaches who themselves had been athletes, and they were working under the wrong impression that you actually have to be brutal and you have to be harsh to train athletes uh, to win medals and produce champions. So I think the, the role that the center can play in sending the message that verbal and physical and emotional abuse does not produce champions. It produces lifelong depression. It produces suicide. And it's the opposite of, uh, of the sort of uh, um, uh, emphasis on human achievement that is really what sport is about. Well, and it gets closer to fulfilling what everybody, you know, talks about as are the values of sport, right? And and sport is closer at achieving what it says its values are when it is doing things like protecting athletes from these sorts of abuses. Um, so just just to, to wrap up on, on your report, what do you want to see happen now? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things very concrete between now and the Olympics, you want to see, you know, this isn't a choice. This is a requirement on having it be someone's job. You've mentioned that there needs to be a, a safe sport, Japan Center for Safe Sport. Um, what else? Well, What do you want to see happen? Yeah, I, I mean, here's the thing. There has to be a central authority for investigating abuse claims um, and punishing abusive coaches. Uh, one of the major findings was that with the exception of one athlete, Everyone we interviewed who'd experienced Taibatsu, physical or, or other abuse in sport or sexual abuse even, all of those coaches were still coaching. And so there does, you mentioned remedy. Um, remedy is a term of art in the, the human rights and the business and human rights community, 
but it, it, it has to be meaningful. So that means that the coach, that you don't have to go and practice or train every day with the coach who punched you in the face, right? It means that if you've been sexually abused, you don't have to still see that coach. Um, uh, and it means that... Um, well, if you've been sexually abused by a coach, that coach shouldn't be coaching, it sounds like. Yes, and one of our other recommendations... Yeah, one of our recommendations is that abuse cases, like we, that we also uh, detail sexual abuse, um, uh, at least two, and we, um, it's very difficult to report sexual abuse in Japan, generally speaking. We know it's a, very much underreported, and we still came across cases. So that abuse cases involving criminal behavior need to be referred to the police and prosecutors for a parallel investigation along with sport bodies. So I think our main conclusion is that there are um, knowable, achievable steps that have been taken in other jurisdictions and that Japan has to act now. The, the, we can't have the opening ceremony of the Olympics with all of the fireworks if there are still systems in place that don't protect children in Japan. That's not consistent. Well, actually, the, the International Olympic Committee did have a statement on the, on, uh, the Human Rights Watch report, and I think it's important what they said. So the International Olympic Committee said that child abuse and abuse of athletes is, not, is inconsistent with the principles in the Olympic Charter. And um, uh, with that as a basis, that means there should be no question, there has to be reform. And unlike the reforms in 2013, they have to be real, real reforms, not just for show. Minky, thank you very much. That was a, uh, a fascinating conversation. Um, very important work you're doing uh, on this report in Japan. Um, but this isn't the only thing that you've been working on. So you've been working on other aspects, both of child abuse and sport, but also uh, human rights issues and sport in general. Can you tell us a little bit about other areas of your work um, that you've been doing as the director of global initiatives? Thanks, Mary. I, you know, I think if you if you think about the work about on human rights and sport worldwide, uh, it's easy to you. I put it in three baskets essentially. Uh, the first one is access, and this is actually the work that we've been doing the longest um, at Human Rights Watch. So this means access to sport, and for a lot of people, they would say, "What on earth are you talking about?" But in many countries, um, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and other countries, um, women and girls in particular have not even been allowed to play sport. Um, and this is not because of poverty or other things. Um, it was until 2000, until the September of 2018, it was actually illegal for women and girls to, millions of them, to play sport in Saudi Arabia. Um, or to go to stadiums in Saudi Arabia. Um, so we've, we have done reporting for a number of years on access to even watching sports, for example, in Iran, where women and girls are banned from watching volleyball or from being spectators at a football um, tournament, such as the World Cup. And what this means, uh, and uh, it's a women's rights issue, it's, a, it's a, a human rights issue, because it means that they're denied the right to be part of the society. They're denied the right to, in some cases, the right to play, um, the right to health, right? If, um, and of course, since sport is 
a multi-billion dollar industry, they might be denied the right to uh, um, the economic benefits of sport, right? If you can't play a sport, then you can't start a company um, with uh, sports wear or sports gear. So um, here or be I a coach or other areas that you might or a, or a coach into. or yep. a referee. So you're really denied an entire area of economic um, uh, access. So I do think, um, so access is one large bucket of uh, research that Human Rights Watch has done over a number of years. Um, we have done a lot of work on safety and um, safety goes to child abuse in sport. Um, over the last 18 months, Human Rights Watch has worked especially on the cases in Afghanistan and Haiti, where the Football Federation president is credibly accused by players of uh, sexual assault and then death threats. Um, so we have uh, uh, interviewed players, we have worked to tell their stories, we have worked to protect them. Um, and then a final area that I think is very important and is very uh, um, timely is the question of quality and pay. Um, so um, many of your listeners will be familiar with the women's, the U.S. women's national team uh, uh, efforts to get pay equality. They filed an equal, an EEOC complaint, an equal opportunity complaint years ago. Um, they have sued the U.S. soccer. So, um, and the U.S. Uh, women actually have it much better than many um, women's national team members I've interviewed around the world because they get paid at all. So it's, in many cases, it's not a question of pay equity. It's that women are not paid at all and the men are. Uh, so it's very, uh, um, uh, it's very difficult for many women to make a career out of the sport. I remember um, uh, interviewing um, a women's national team member from Puerto Rico who said, you know, that they um, can only use the pitch at night after the men are finished with it. They have hand-me-down clothes, and if anyone is injured, they have to pay their own medical bills. And of course, it goes without saying, they're not paid for the work of for the work of playing for the national team. So I think we need to um, address all of these issues and all these human rights issues in sport. Um, and a final area that I think is really will be interesting for your listeners is an area we worked on really for 20 years, dating back to before the Beijing Olympics. And of course, the Olympics will come again to China. The Winter Olympics will come in 2022. And that, that area is what we call standard setting. So for a long time, the sports system has been outside of the human rights regulatory system. Um, and that means that the international human rights standards that might apply in times of war or in um, the workplace were not applied to sport. And I think that has uh, led to, for example, many dictatorships wanting to have sport as a way of um, uh, raising their presence in the world without having to put up with much criticism. So You're referring, the, of course, to sports washing. I'm referring to sports washing. Um, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia has um, hosted the world heavyweight boxing title. Uh, they hosted the Dakar rally this year, and they were the Saudi government was uh, trying to host the World Cup to co-host it in 2022. So I think if a country is dismembering journalists or locking up women's rights activists, 
then tough questions have to be asked about whether they're meeting the, the, the international standards of human rights and human dignity that are expected in, in hosting these major sporting events. So that's, um, I think that's a really interesting area. The, the other dimension of this is that FIFA, um, which is the world governing body for football, um, after a, a corruption scandal, took steps to rehabilitate their image by adopting the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And we have seen a very significant set of changes since then. Um, they have set up a human rights, FIFA set up a human rights advisory board, hired a human rights manager, has um, taken action on longstanding problems like the Iranian women being denied the access to stadium that I mentioned before. So we now have a system where if these federations will adopt the international human rights standards that, by the way, they're already covered by, um, then they are able to positively use their leverage to do things like make sure that women and girls can watch soccer, right? So I think that's the most interesting and positive uh, possible area for the future is if the International Olympic Committee adopts uh, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, if they hire staff who have expertise in human rights, then as we head into the Beijing Olympics in 2022, we're going to need um, those standards to be upheld. There is no press freedom in China. Uh, there, is no, it, there is no free internet. So how are journalists, for example, just to take one example, how are journalists going to report on the Winter Olympics if they can't access the internet? Um, so there, there are, these are practical things. Another area I might mention is that um, in Xinjiang, um, uh, more than a million Muslims have been incarcerated in re-education through labor camps. Um, uh, you know, I think the International Olympic Committee, FIFA, and all other sports bodies need to be concerned about whether the Olympic mascots or sports gear or branded materials uh, are being, with the FIFA logo, are being produced by slave labor um, from uh, workers in Xinjiang who are being shipped all over the country. So, well, one of the things that that we're that we've seen, you mentioned the FIFA example. The one thing that that um, you didn't mention, but I think I think it's it's incredibly significant, and you've said this as well, is they made a statutory commitment. So they they actually put it into the constitution of of the organization, right? To they have a I think it's Article Four, Article Three, Article Three, um, and Article, Article 4. Three, and Article Four of the FIFA statutes actually um, call in and protect human rights. So that means that if there's an issue anywhere that involves um, FIFA as a governing body, there's something to hang your hat on, right? The, the, and the Human Rights Advisory Board that, that assists them on these things. But th this is a critical differentiator because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are they still the only one, only uh, international governing body that's actually done that? Um, FIFA is the only one that has uh, formally adopted the UN guiding principles, but uh, as we discussed earlier, every sports federation, um, every national governing body, they're all enterprises and they are all covered. 
So it's, um, you know, I think there is a major advantage to affirmatively adopting the UN guiding principles and hiring someone whose job it is to um, uh, manage the, the inevitable human rights problems, right? So every, every, just like every company has human rights problems, um, every government has human rights problems, every sports federation has human rights problems, whether they know it or not. And I think when we're talking about raising the bar on sports, um, you know, we, we, one area we didn't cover was, for example, large numbers of migrant workers who have died or are injured building World Cup stadiums, um, right? So for the, so for the um, uh, World Cup in Russia, 20, at least 22 workers died building stadiums. That's the size of a football team. Um, uh, and I think increasingly the public, right? So the billions of people who watch the World Cup or who watch the Olympics, they don't want to sit in a stadium that workers died to build. They don't want to participate. They don't want to give their money um, to events or to buy products sponsored um, that are associated with child abuse in sport. I think one of the questions to Olympic sponsors is given the revelations around USA Gymnastics, um, you know, what are sponsors doing to to say that they don't uh, that they don't support child abuse and there need to be protections? So, uh, you know, the but the vision for the future is that all of these sports federations will affirmatively adopt the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. That they will take the steps to um, know what abuses are happening in their system and to remedy them. And then they will and then they will be public about it, right? And I do think that um, we are at a, a pivotal moment when sports could be a catalyst for improving human rights worldwide. Um, you know, I, I'll give one example. Uh, as you know, the World Cup will be in Qatar in uh, 2022, in November of 2022, the Men's World Cup. And um, Qatar is a country that criminalizes LGBT identity, right? So you're, if you are LGBT, your identity, your, who you are is the, is the crime. Um, uh, and Human Rights Watch has worked on this for a number of years. So I think the question is what 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 could be done about this criminal law? Laws are passed all the time, laws are changed all the time. Is there the possibility that one of the durable legacies of the World Cup in Qatar could be changing this law that that criminalizes the identity of LGBT people? That would be a very positive development for Qatar, but then of course for the entire Gulf area, which has similar laws and they all have ambitions to host these major sporting events. So in the areas of worker rights, in the areas of access, in the areas of diversity and inclusion, there is the possibility of using the desire of these countries to host these events to actually change the laws beyond the event itself. So speaking of laws, um, we've, we've seen actually, and this is, you know, Qatar was awarded in 2010. Uh, so change happens, you know, it takes a long time to make change happen. But uh, there have been changes in Qatar um, regarding laws when it comes to worker welfare, for example. So um, they've abolished the kafala system. 
um, and they, I believe, have recently passed a minimum wage, um, not just for people in the construction sector, but I think countrywide. Um, and there are some other, um, I think there are elections now for, uh, unions are not allowed, but they have had elections for um, worker representatives to represent their concerns to management. I think some of those things have taken place, have they not? So, so there have been important reforms in Qatar, and it has been driven in part by the spotlight of the World Cup. Um, there have also been abuses that have been caused by building um, a, a half a dozen brand new stadiums. Um, there are now as many as a million um, migrant workers were, who are building these stadiums, um, and a total of two, of two million. But I think um, there have been important uh, reforms However, as you mentioned, there are no unions and Human Rights Watch has consistently reported and we will have a new report um, that shows that there is still a, a profound problem with wage cheating, um, including on the World Cup sites. So I think um, the law reforms are very significant, but it is also implementation matters enormously because if you, pa if you change a law or you change a policy or practice, then you actually have to implement it and you need a monitoring. So um, our interviews with a number of workers, um, our, and we reported on this as recently as January, was that they were experiencing um, uh, wage cheating and wage delays. So I do think that um, there are, are important reforms, but you also cannot skip that step of monitoring the reforms to make sure they're really being carried out. Which brings us back to where we started with Japan. Um, so thank you, Minky. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, you can find Minky on Twitter. You may have the best Twitter handle I've ever heard. Minky's hijinks, at Minky's hijinks. Uh, and you can follow Human Rights Watch at Human HRW, at HRW on Twitter. Thanks you so much to you for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the Sport and Rights podcast. For more information on the center, please go to sporthumanrights.org and follow us uh, on Twitter at, at Sport and Rights. Thank you, Mary, for everything you and the center are doing to advance uh, human rights in sport. It's making an enormous difference. Thank you, Mickey. Thanks for listening to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast. To find out more about the center, visit sporthumanrights.org and follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights. <laughs>